Well, welcome everybody. My name is Nancy Orberg, and I have the distinct privilege today of introducing you to Brian Dwyer and doing a bit of an interview with him as a precursor to what you'll hear at the Exponential Conference in the Bay Area in October. Brian is the senior pastor at Alpine Church in Utah, and they are a multi-site church with eight different campuses. They have a weekly attendance of over 2,700 people and an unusual piece of their church are new believers that come from a Mormon background. So hopefully we'll get to hear a little bit more of that from Brooks. One of the other things that he spent some time on that I think the church is desperately in need of are really good discipleship online resources. And he's the founder of PursueGod.org. And you can check that out to take a look at what it is there that might be available for your church. We're looking at how big is your circle. We're looking about at Together, the Great Collaboration. And part of the vision for the body of Christ goes way beyond any one local church. It goes way beyond the four walls and looks at the region and the whole. And only one church is impossible to be able to fulfill that vision. So we're going to look today about what would it mean for churches to come together and to learn together and to participate in the kingdom together, that every part of the body of Christ and every church has something to teach other churches. And when we open ourselves up to learn from each other and to act together, we're able to accomplish the kind of unity that God was talking about. So I wanna welcome Brian right now. And Brian, we're just so grateful to have you on here and looking forward to the next hour together. Yeah, thanks, me too, Nancy. Great, well, let's start here. Um, with the new Expo conference coming, finally together again after last year being apart, uh, around Together the Great Collaboration. Um, when we look at the Great Commission in Matthew 20, nobody would argue with that. And when we look at the Great Commandment in Mark 12, nobody would argue with that. And so we know that we're supposed to go and we're supposed to do it in love. But this piece of doing it together seems to be missing somewhat that we've forgotten Jesus's challenge in John 17. I, I find it fascinating that he uses his last public prayer for the topic of unity, which he really didn't talk about very much. And having been a nurse, I know that when people are getting near their death, you pay attention to the last things they talk about. And so how do we take seriously this call for unity? What does that look like for you? Well, I think first of all, it means that we're taking seriously the call to mission. You know, I think unity doesn't exist in a, in a vacuum. So when, when Jesus is giving that pep talk, and, and I think for context, you really need to read John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, because that's sort of the gospel of John presents that as what well, I like to call it Jesus's last pep talk. And you'll notice in that whole passage that it, he's, there are certain themes that are just being weaved throughout everything that he's telling his disciples, of course, before he went to the cross. And the theme, the, the main themes are, really are these three themes. Number one, it's love. Obviously, um, Jesus said, love God, love people. So, you know, that's the greatest commandment. The second theme that, that actually I think a lot of Christians, I believe, actually miss this, but the second theme really is mission, right? He, Jesus said in John 15 to his disciples, don't think that you called me. Don't think that you chose me. He said, I have chosen you. I've chosen you to go make disciples. So we, we see this not just in John 13 through 17, but we see this in all of the gospels, in all of Jesus's teachings. It just jumps out at the page that he's, he expects, he's got this picture in mind for his followers. And the picture is not what we have in our churches. I mean, I, I hate to say that. I don't mean to be mean-spirited toward Christians watching this, but I do encourage you to let the Holy Spirit convict you of this idea that most Christians don't live on mission. Most Christians know the Great Commission, Matthew 28, go make disciples. But if you actually go around and start asking, I know this is what we did at our church over 10 years ago. We said, we looked at that and we said, are we really actually doing this? Or, or are we showing up to church every week, week in, week out, week out, putting on a good show so that people could um, come back next week for the same show? And 
when we got serious about our, our mission, which again relates to love. So these are these two themes in, in Jesus's pep talk in John 13 through 17, the mission and, and how connected that is to loving God and loving people, which, which means that you, the most loving thing you can do for someone is to disciple them, right? Jesus is discipling these 12. It's the most loving thing that he could possibly do was pour into them for three years and disciple them. And then interestingly, he said, now you guys go do the same thing. I want you to make disciples. And the, I think the point is, if you're not, if you're not, if you don't get that part of it, the love part of it, most Christians, a lot of Christians miss the mission part of it. Sadly, most Christians miss. Then I don't think this topic, what Jesus is getting to in John chapter 17 about the great collaboration. I think this will just fall on, on deaf ears because Again, because collaboration, unity does not occur in a vacuum. Unity occurs because of mission, and unity occurs because of love. And so these two things, the natural byproduct of really loving one another, which is the heart of the Ten Commandments, and then and, and really being on mission, being obedient to the call in our lives to make disciples, those two things, the natural byproduct of that is now we start to get unified. And that's why unity is the last thing Jesus talks about in his pep talk, because he'd been talking about love, this new commandment to love, and he'd been talking about mission. And now finally, he says, now in the context of all that, I want you to love one another. But even when you read that, when he talks about loving one another in John 17, 21 and 22, you've got to pay attention. In fact, I'll show you this now. If, I don't know if you can see this, but you've got to pay attention to what he says in verse 21. He says, I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. He's talking to the Father. As you are in me, Father, I'm in you. And may they be in us. But look at it. It's so that there's a purpose for this collaboration, for this unity. The purpose is mission, so that the world will believe that you sent me. So he's, it's coming right back to mission. And then verse 23, I'm in them, you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity. Again, it's not just unity for unity's sake. May they experience this unity so that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. So unity, collaboration, again, does not exist um, on its own. It's the byproduct of mission and love. So great. You just used the phrase. I was going to sum a bit of it up. It's not unity for unity's sake. Mm -hmm. There's a purpose to it. And I appreciate so much just the, um, the exegetical work you've done with the chapters leading up to John 17. Last year, I reread the Gospels in um, Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message. And I honestly finished wondering how our churches ended up the way they are. It feels so far away from the gospel and that call. It seems like you had a lot of courage to ask that tough question a few years ago. Is our church on mission? Um, did that feel like a scary question to ask at the time? Oh yeah. And I, I was, to be honest, I wasn't even asking it. We, a year, about 10 years ago, an associate of mine, we went out to uh, the Philippines and got to spend a week with a church out there, Victory Church, Steve Morell, the author of Wiki Church, great book if you haven't read it. We had no idea what was going to hit us. We went out there thinking we were doing great. You know, we're, a, we're at the time, we were the fastest growing and the largest Christian church in Utah just 10 years in. We, we were patting ourselves on the back thinking we were doing, doing what God wanted us to do. And we, we got there and we realized by seeing it, by seeing a church that was actually functioning in a biblical way, you know, Ephesians 4 says that, that the pastor's job is to equip the people to make disciples. Well, that's not how we do it in America, by and large. We say, well, the pastor's job is to preach a good sermon so that more people will come back next week. That, so in other words, the American sort of church culture is the pastor does all the ministry and then everyone else watches the pastor do the ministry. And I must confess, that's how we ran our church. And it was growing. So I thought we were winning. And then I went out there to Victory Church, which, which was several years ahead of us, but was a massively large church. But, but they, they weren't doing it the way we were doing it. There was, there was a, something at the, there was like an engine at the, 
in their model of ministry that was completely different than our engine that was running the whole machine. Our engine was good sermons, good Sunday morning gateway services. Their engine at that church was disciple making. They took it real seriously and they had a real expectation that everyone makes disciples. And again, what was really, there were a lot of things we learned over the course of that visit and, and thinking about it for years afterward. And that's actually what inspired us to create PursueGod.org to be a tool that could run churches that want to be like that. But what, what really opened our, what, what we really opened our eyes to is that everyone was on mission there. They had this massive church that was multi-site and just taken the world by storm. But the, the, there was this incredible sense of unity among their staff, their staff kids, their, their volunteers at their church. I mean, all the way down to a 10-year-old in the hallway. Everyone said the same thing. We want to honor God and make disciples. Every, everyone knew the mantra, and it wasn't just the mantra. Those weren't just words. That was really what they lived day in and day out. And 25 years of living at that time, 25 years of living that created really this massive movement of a unified group of believers who really were about um, God's heart and God's mission, right? Mm -hmm. They were about loving people, really loving them, but in a really measurable way where they would actually start discipling someone, which we might in our church call it evangelism because a lot of these people, they were discipling outside of the church. And once they came to faith, then they would invite them to church, which was another thing that blew our minds. And, but the point is we realized that we had it wrong, that we weren't on mission and we were heading in a direction, I think, to, to be disunified. Because again, if you don't, just like in the military, the thing that unifies these guys, and I've got, we've got a lot of military folks in our churches the thing that unifies these, they're the most unified when they're out there on the field, when they're in the foxholes, and they're not unified by what they like to eat or, you know, wh where they come from. They're unified by their mission. They have a common mission. And so every military person would say the sense of unity that you get is intensified when you're on the field versus when you're just at, at home going through drills. And that's because mission really does unify us. So I believe that if we would be about mission, then we'll see much more unity inside our churches and really even then among other churches and other tribes. That's great. I have a next question I want to get to, but just finishing, <clears throat> excuse me, off of this one. It's a very powerful experience you had in the Philippines. What was the plane ride back like home? At what point did you have that stirring feeling of, I got to ask a question. I'm not sure I want the answer to. Yeah, we know we were, my associate and I, as we, as we flew back, we spent probably almost the whole flight, 10, 12, 15 hours taking notes, processing. We saw so much. We learned so much getting to talk with some of the leaders and also getting to talk with just the regular tenders. It really was foreign what we saw. And so we, we weren't, it still took us a couple of years to really put it all together in our minds, but we started right away saying, we're going to figure this out. And we, we held a meeting with our, our pastoral staff right away. We shared with them our findings. We shared, we confessed our shortcomings. We confessed that we broke the church, that, that the way we were measuring things, the way we were, what we were considering to be a win um, wasn't really a win again, as we just looked at scripture. So luckily we, you know, we had, we had people on our team that were humble enough to say, all right, let's scrap it all and let's figure out what we need to do to make it right. So we were doing that. We were certainly doing that right away. And, you know, it took several years for us to really start to put our finger on it. And then, you know, the biggest thing we needed was, was tools so that we could, so that when we told someone in our church, we want you to go make disciples that we could follow it up with. And here's, here's how, here's actually how we want you to do it. Because again, Ephesians four says the pastor's job is to equip the church to do the ministry. So we had to build the equipment and that's really what PursueGod.org was. It's so helpful to hear the backstory <clears throat> and uh, the, the permission you just gave all of us saying it took us a couple of years to figure this out. 
instead of let's write a notebook real quick and just implement this right away, but to let the spirit do that work. And then the courage and the humility, which is such a great combination that it sounds like your leadership team brought together. So maybe this is probably also a discipleship question. Could you unpack for us a little bit? Why was it important to Jesus that the mission be done alongside of other people? Why? yeah, I think a, a real a real life uh, answer to that would be the story of Mormonism. Um, I don't know how many of you know, uh, you know, who are watching this. If you know the Mormons, you probably know some Mormons, and but you might not know their history, their story. You know, Joseph Smith started Mormonism dur- in the burnt during the burnt out period uh, on the East Coast. If you know, kind of middle New York, Palmyra, New York. Um, there were, it was the Second Great Awakening, guys like Charles Finney and so many people. And what was happening in that area, the reason we call it the Burnt Out District, this area of, of, I think it's Western New York State, is because there was revival going through that area. And there was so much revival that had gone through. So many people heard the gospel and then, um, you know, sort of prayed the sinner's prayer, but then didn't live their lives to honor God. It, it wasn't for a lot of it, it wasn't really a redeeming thing. It was just, they were waiting for the next show to come into town. And so it's called the burnt district or the burnt over district in this period of time in the early 1800s. And guess who lived during that time? Joseph Smith. Actually, there are something like five or six um, cults that are traced to that time period in Western, in that same region in Western New York, And the reason is, I think, because so many people had such a shallow form of religion, it wasn't a real, it wasn't a real abiding faith in Christ. It was more about the show. It's kind of like how we do church today. It was more about the show. And so it just made me think of one of the things Andy Stanley will say when people say, are you praying for revival? Is that anywhere there's been revival 20 years later, there's not. Yeah. So what does it mean to live chronically faithful? And I think yeah. that's what you're describing. I'm sorry. Keep going. No, that's good, Nancy. And really, that's what that's what was happening. And then on top of it, what Joseph Smith, what he really preyed on in all the people in that region, one of his main motivations for starting Mormonism, and I'm not going to get into all this, but I'll just say for starting Mormonism, was he said, all of these denominations are an abomination. So he, what his message was that disunity is proof that the church has become apostate and needs to be restored. And so he, he claims that Mormonism is a restoration of the early church, you know, that, that when, when, John, when John, the last apostle, uh, died, that basically the church went apostate all those years until until God revealed himself once again to Joseph Smith. And and Joseph Smith said, all the denominations are an abomination. They're all, they're all messed up, which is by the way, one of the reasons we're not a denominational church. We didn't want to give one more reason for a Mormon not to come check out Alpine church, but really the, the disunity that Joseph Smith saw among the churches was an impetus. And it's, it's one thing for it to be an impetus in his mind but it's another thing altogether that it resonated with Christians. And so many Christians came into this day, come out of, come out of Christianity or sort of semi-Christianity and become Mormons. And part of the reason is because they say, yeah, we're uh, all these denominations. It's really confusing. And, and there must, there must be the truth in this other, in this other church who doesn't claim to be a denomination, at least never did, but now they do. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. So there's huge implications for this lack of unity. And sometimes I wonder if Jesus asking us to do it together is, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer used to say in community, the person you least like will always sit next to you. And it is good for you that he does. Mm -hmm. And I can love in theory really well, Mm -hmm. but you put me shoulder to shoulder with somebody that annoys me or irritates me. And now I have to live out my discipleship while I'm trying to do this with some form of unity. Um, so what are some of the reasons that we should collaborate with leaders that are not part of our own tribe? How does that work? How does unity and collaboration work with people that aren't necessarily part of our tribe? 
Well, again, I think our context really helps us to answer that because what I would say that we're not talking about Mormons then, right? We're talking about other Christians who, um, who believe the same basic gospel message that we believe. So we've had to be discerning about this. And I would say to anyone who is, is maybe being approached by another denomination or a cult in particular, I'll just say it, a cult in particular, obviously we're not talking about uh, trying, to, trying to force unity because you don't have missional unity. You don't have theological gospel unity. So, so I'll, I'll say that as a preface, pref, preface to all of it. But, but I do think then as a result, especially for us out here in Utah, in Utah, Christian churches in Utah have, I think, have more unity than churches in most other places in our country because we're on a mission field and we genuinely need each other. You know, when we moved here to Utah, um, it was 99.8% Mormon across the state, something like that. It's unbelievable 20 plus years ago. And when you're, when you're fighting uh, an uphill battle boy, you need, you need one another. You need other believers who are going to walk with you and, and help you to um, accomplish your mission. So for us, that's our main motivator is we need each other. You know, it's lonely out here. Ministry in Utah, years ago it was that denominations would send, send pastors to Utah to die, <laughs> you know, because it was so hard to do ministry. I don't think it's that way anymore, but that's how I've heard that's how it used to be. And so when we do get together as pastors in Utah, there's just a real sweet, sense of camaraderie and we're praying for one another we're lifting one another up because we're not in competition with each other we really are all on the same team trying to trying to share the gospel with people who so desperately need it i wonder sometimes about the apparently quite intentional choice that jesus made to put simon the zealot and matthew the tax collector on his team I, I really think mostly Simon decided to follow Jesus because he really believed Jesus's mission was to overthrow the Roman government mm. and Matthew worked for the Roman government. And so even on Jesus's team, he had people that really all they had in common was Jesus. And they disagreed about a lot of the secondary and tertiary issues, but that was the, where their unity was. And well, I think yeah, and later Bay, on, probably, probably even a more stark example of this is the apostle Paul, right? I mean, he, here's this Pharisee, who's actively working against these, this right. ragtag bunch of fishermen and tax collectors. And then he meets Jesus and, and comes to faith in Jesus. And it's, and he's, I think that was one of his big struggles. I'm sure is to humble himself enough. I think that was part of why Jesus did it this way is he had to really show this incredible humility, which is required, right. To be unified with people that you might not see eye to eye with. Again, you see eye to eye on the major things, even though I think Peter struggled on some of those major things because of his Jewish background. Um, but, but some of those side issues, like clearly Peter's personality was probably hard to get along with. And I think probably Paul's personality seems like it was probably hard to get along with too. And I love, I, I just wish I was a fly on the wall when Paul was first introduced to the apostles in Jerusalem. I mean, yeah. can you imagine? They must have been saying, God, this is a really bad idea. Well, in that, right after he encounters Jesus, God tells Ananias to go find him and pray for him. And Ananias is like, yeah, I don't think so. That is a really yep. bad idea. I'm not going to yep. do that. Yeah. Well, and think about it. He, Jesus didn't have to use Ananias. He was using a donkey well enough. He was, right. Jesus could have said it himself, but I think Jesus is using Ananias and later Peter and the others, he's using people for a reason, because like you said earlier, you can't, you really can't live the Christian life in isolation. You can't be obedient to all the commandments in isolation because so many of the commandments are one another commandments. So, so we, and I don't think that's just within the church, but I do think then that means kind of across the board in our communities that churches, man, wouldn't it be great, Nancy, if churches were seen to be, um, like about the main thing, like we just, even though we might have different, some distinctives theologically, that we have just this incredible grace toward one another. And, and we really are about the main thing, all of us across the board, we're about the main thing, which again, the main thing, there's two main things. One is love. And then the other, which is re reflecting the heart of God for people, as opposed to judgment or what, what Christians are usually tagged with. And then the second one is 
is mission. And I, and I think in our culture, as secular culture pulls more and more away from a biblical standard, we need this, I think, more than ever, because I personally think we need to get, we as a church need to get better at how do we articulate a biblical standard when the secular world is going to make it look like hate speech. I think mm-hmm. if we get better at showing this beautiful unity, this this, lo- this ability that Jesus had to draw the line in the sand, but yet still love, I think we as a church need to get better at that because it seems like we're only getting worse at it. Absolutely. And with Jesus as the center holding our unity together, these secondary and tertiary issues, even though they may feel really important to us, it's just not going to be the main thing. I feel like I'm going to get to heaven and be wrong about a lot of things. And I'm just going to throw the Jesus card down and say, okay, I was wrong. It's not the point. Um, And this kind of unity you're describing, I think, sees beyond those and moves towards uh, the centrality of Jesus as the the holder together of the unity. So it, it sticks. There's a few pretty predominant pockets in the Bay area where different churches of a different stripe, but that all love Jesus are coming together with city officials and city officials are starting to see that the church can show up as an unstoppable force to help with issues in the city and that they can be united, even though there's lots of things that they may not agree on. And I think it's, it's a beautiful witness. So probably the most important question that I think you're really well-versed to help us is how do we take next steps to move from theory to praxis, to, to putting this into, you know, you, you take this trip, you're um, exposed to some new thinking and new ways of seeing and experiencing the church in the Philippines. You have this process where you come back and you collaborate with other people. What are the steps that are first to be taken to move towards this kind of unity? Well, you know, the steps that, that we took and I think um, were helpful, and I always encourage pastors of other churches as we try to help other churches put their finger on the problem. I think the first step is is really to be honest and to ask questions like, you know, questions about love and mission first, right? Because again, unity collaboration flows out of love and mission. I think if we try to force collaboration, we won't, we won't really even know what we're collaborating around. And so I, at the church level, at elder teams, pastoral teams, I think it's important to ask questions like this. What, what really is our mission as a church? And it's probably some version of the Great Commission. Most churches are, which is great. So then the, the most important follow-up question is, are we actually accomplishing it? And are there any measurables that point to it? And so Again, in our church, the answer, when we really said that, we, we weren't talking about church growth. We weren't talking about how many people have, are coming to church and, and filling the seats. We really had to say, as a, with the example of Victory Church in the Philippines in our mind, we really had to say, how many people in our church right now, maybe even start with your elder team or your pastoral team, how many people are actively discipling someone right now? And when we asked that, when we asked that question, several of us said, yeah, I am, and I am, and I am. And so then the, the third question, this follow-up question was, what, how are you doing it? And 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 what we realized is that our that there was no unity in our method. And so because there was no unity in our method, we really weren't accomplishing the mission because kind of like the judges period mantra, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. So some people are discipling with a book study. Some people are discipling with something else. And really, to be honest, even our definition of discipleship itself needed to be defined so that we were all sort of playing from the same playbook. And so those are the th- those are the early things that we did. Now, PursueGod.org, we've, we've got resources for all of that that can help people to, to kind of work through that process. And we've come up with some real language and some definitions that, that is sort of the first part of being unified is let's make sure that we're, we're using the same language. And now, now that we're using the same language and the same metrics and milestones, now we can actually start holding ourselves accountable to actually accomplishing the mission, not saying that we're accomplishing the mission, but actually doing it 
week in, week out on a regular basis. And so all of that right there, that, that took us years to formulate and figure out. And boy, but once we did, it allowed us to identify the people who weren't unified with us. And we weren't mean spirited about it, but we just said, Hey, look, if this isn't, if this isn't what you're signing up for, maybe, you know, maybe this isn't, a, this isn't the church for you. And, and Nancy, we lost many pastoral staff members over the course of eight years. Um, some of it was ugly. A couple of them just last year um, <laughs> resigned on the same day and announced that they were opening their own church just down the street from one of our campuses. So those kinds of things happen. But in retrospect, we look, that, we look at that and we say, thank the Lord for that, because now we're able to really identify who's on, the, on, on board. These people weren't, you know, devil worshipers. These people were godly people, but they just weren't, un- they weren't on the same page with us. And, and until we were really asking those hard questions, we, it was really hard to identify who was really going to be on mission with us. Yeah. Wow. So you, pay, you absolutely paid a price. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is also a good reminder. I love that you said you start with asking questions because that just puts you into a posture of a learner um, instead of racing too quick to find out the answer. Let me ask you this because discipleship is a hard nut to crack. Um, One of the things I love is when Henry Cloud says, all of life is spiritual formation. Mm -hmm. You can write a check. You can teach a kid to ride a bicycle. You can open your Bible and read verses. It's all spiritual formation. So what is a helpful framework as you guys are thinking about discipleship that would help us to understand the parameters of it and the, the framework for it? Yeah, that was, again, early on, that was one of the first things we had to identify. Once we realized we had to make disciples, right? So we came back with this revelation. We've got to be about making disciples. That's our mission, the Great Commission. The next, the next question was, what are we making? What exactly is a disciple? You know, if you had, a, if you're making, if you ran a factory and you made a bunch of, you know, widgets, you, you would want to make sure that you know what the widget is that you're looking to, you'd have to have some quality control so that you as a factory are putting out a good product. And so the, the church, Steve Morell says this in one of his books, the church is a, is a fact, is a disciple making factory. The thing that we should be producing as a church um, is not music. It's not sermons. It's not um, food for the lost at the, or for the hungry at the, at the end of the day, the thing that we're producing as a church is a disciple. That's what the church is called to do is we're supposed to make disciples. And so we said, well, what's our quality control? What is a disciple? What does a disciple look like? And as we looked at scripture Really, we, had to, we only had to just go back to Matthew 28, where it said, Jesus said, go make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey everything. So what we see in that are these three elements. Number one, when he said baptizing them, to me, that means that Jesus was telling them that disciple making started with evangelism. In other words, discipleship is not a program in the church to make smart Christians smarter. Discipleship is about, at least, at least when Jesus said it, go make disciples, Peter didn't turn to John and say, would you join my discipleship Bible study? They knew that Jesus was saying, you need to go out and find people who don't know me yet and introduce them to me and then baptize them. So, right. So just the fact that he says baptizing them means baptism was something that you did with someone after they came to faith in Christ. So number one, the first part is a disciple trusts Jesus for salvation. And in Utah in particular, that's really important because we have a bunch of religious people who do a lot of good things, but they've never trusted Jesus for salvation. So when we disciple a a Mormon, that's the first thing we need to make sure to do. And I think that's true for churches all around the world is we've got to share the gospel with them and, and help them to trust Jesus for salvation. So number one, he trusts Jesus. Number two, he honors God, right? Jesus said, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. So this is, you know, sanctification that a disciple should honor God in their daily life and their lifestyle and their choices that over time, there should be more fruit of the spirit in their life, not less that they grow in, you know, spiritual formation and all that stuff. So we would put that kind of in the second thing in our picture. So the first thing is that they trust Jesus for salvation. The second thing is that they honor God in their life. 
And then the third thing, again, is right back there in the Great Commission where Jesus said, go make disciples. We don't believe that he was just saying that to the original 12 disciples. We think that that's a perpetual command that he's saying to us, this is, this is what I expect from every one of my followers. And the beautiful thing is, is when you make disciples, so many things are just the natural byproduct of it. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that when you make disciples, you're not tossed and, and thrown about on every wind of new teaching anymore, that, that you actually are solid, that you speak the truth in love. And so disciple making grows us up. We, we believe that you cannot be mature unless you're discipling someone else maturity really is defined by that third thing that you get in the game and start discipling. Most of our churches say that maturity is defined by how much you know, how much scripture you know, or how long you've gone to church. But think about it, Nancy, we have churches all around the country that have people who have grown old in the church and know the Bible backwards and forwards. And if you were to ask them, tell me someone you've discipled, they wouldn't have a name for you. At least not the way Jesus defined discipleship. They wouldn't have a name for you. I don't think these old-time Christians realize that they're sinning. Like, if, if, you were to say, if you were to say to one of them, hey, what if you just blatantly disregarded one of Jesus' commands where Jesus said to be sexually pure and did quit cheating on your wife? What, what would you say to someone who walks in your church who just blatantly disregards that? Like, you would have a problem with that. You would call that out, right? And yet... The, probably the most common commandment from Jesus in the Gospels is to go make disciples. And very few Christians actually do this. And so that's why, again, I just think it's so important to make sure that we're defining that picture of a disciple right. It's someone who trusts Jesus, who honors God, and who makes disciples. And so when we got that picture in mind that this is what we call a full circle disciple, then we could actually start talking about the win and whether we were actually putting out the right product in our church factory. Now you, you hit on a lot of important things there. One of the things I've thought often is uh, maybe one of the reasons we measure the wrong things in church and not, they're not wrong, but they're not the main thing mm -hmm. is because discipleship is hard to measure. It's much harder to measure than how much money did we bring in this week and how many people were in the seats. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not as critical as this discipleship piece. So figuring out what the framework looks like, what the process looks like and how you can tell if you're doing it right. And also I love your factory analogy, but Dallas Willard also said, you know, uh, disciples are not mass produced, they're handcrafted. Yeah. And so right. the factory analogy works to a degree and then you have to switch over to the, how do you personalize this mm -hmm. in a way that maybe initially is not easily scalable. Um, but yeah, that's good. Yeah, maybe it's better to think of a Christian as a mini factory. Like, mm -hmm. I need to be a disciple making machine. You know, in, in yeah. my life, since, since I came back from the Philippines, mm -hmm. I personally have discipled over 100 people personally. And the reason I can say that, I, I, even though I was all about discipleship for most of my life since I was in high school, because I never actually had a way to measure it, because I, because I actually never had a picture of what I was trying to produce, what I did is I invested in a lot of people and I fell short of empowering them to invest in someone else. If they did it, they did it by chance. They didn't do it because I said so. They didn't do it because I was driving toward that. They did it because, the, thank God, the Holy Spirit did it, did it through them. But, but that's not how Jesus approached it. Look at what he said to his disciples when he first called them. He said, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. So he had the end in mind from the very beginning. He said, hey, if you follow me, I'm going to turn you into a disciple-making machine, essentially. And then he did because he was about that. That's, he was so, so single-minded. Again, John 17, he was so focused on love, mission, unity, which is the result of love and mission, he was so focused on this, and I, I honestly think it breaks God's heart to look at the state of the church today that I think has just turned into something it was never, ever intended to be. You know, really, the churches that are the closest to the New Testament church are churches in China and Iraq, right, where you, where you, you have to be underground. And so the institutional church doesn't get in the way of individual disciple-making machines. Well, and in places like that, consumerism and nationalism and materialism 
just can't be the main thing because survival is the main thing. Yeah. And we have a lot to learn from those places. Um, I also think it's, it's heartening too, as focused as Jesus was on discipleship. I don't know about you, but when I get to the end of the gospels and realize Jesus is going to the cross, it's like, these guys aren't ready. You have so much more work to do with them, but they were ready enough with the Holy spirit. They were ready enough. Um, Yeah, that's why you go back to the Great Commission. You know, he says, go make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. There's one more thing he says at the end, and and I will be with you to the end of the age. So he's, it's not, you're right. Like these guys weren't ready at all, but that's, I love that. I love that he picked people intentionally who wouldn't be ready. Oh. He He picked regular average people because, well, I think because they're the ones who would actually do it. You know, I think sometimes people who well, and, and the hope it gives to all of us, yeah. yeah, the hope that the average regular person can be a follower of Jesus. Right. He did. This was not a cream of the crop group he put together. That's right. But I think it gives us so much hope. Is it didn't have to be cream of the crop that he did it with really just about anybody. Yeah. Um, wow. So we, we've certainly seen this in the Bay Area also. What do you feel like if people want, and, and I know you've made a great case that it's about love and relationships and uh, mission together uh, that then lead to the right kind of unity. But backing it up a little bit, we sure see lots of obstacles to unity. What kind of obstacle? I, I think going into a process, knowing what obstacles you may hit helps keep your courage up because you're not surprised by it. What are some of the obstacles to unity that you would say to us? You, you could probably just expect these things. Yeah, I, Even though I would say for, paper, everybody would say I'm all for unity. Yeah, I would say for like pastors in particular, I know for me, I'll confess for me, just busyness. You know, I get so busy. Mm-hmm. My schedule gets so busy that I don't, sometimes I don't even have time for my own staff, let alone some other pastors in the region or in the area. You know, we have a meeting every month for pastors in the area. And I don't always make those meetings. And, you know, a lot of times it's just not a priority for me. It's not, it's not, you know, I've allowed too much to crowd my, my life and my schedule. So I think that's a big one. And then I just, you know, again, you go, before you go on, it made yeah. me think this is one of the most provocative things I think I ever heard Dallas Willard say, he said, the number one job of every pastor are the other pastors in his neighborhood. Hmm. I was like, wait a minute, what? And he said, that is the thing that will decrease ego and decrease walls so that the kingdom can flourish. So that's a pretty impressive charge for pastors to consider. Yeah, that's good. And, and I would say that was my second thing is just ego, that that, that is part of the not making time for it is because you think you're too important, right? But what did Paul say? Don't think you're too important. Jesus didn't. So Jesus himself said, you know, you're not that important. And so I, I do think it's pastors being humble and saying, I need, and, I, and maybe even more than humble, being vulnerable, saying, mm-hmm. um, I need you. Not just you need me, but I actually need you and breaking down those walls. We do have a really neat group of pastors that meet in our area that are just humble, loving men praying for one another, praying for each other's families and marriages and struggles and congregations. And um, it's a pretty beautiful thing, but it took a while for us to get there. Sure. And then you have this community of leaders that know they're in this together. They're not alone. Uh, We have a couple of churches in the Bay Area that every Sunday pray out loud for another church in their region. And the pastor knows this person. He's not doing a generic prayer for that church. He's specifically praying for, here's what they're going through right now. As a way to also communicate to the church, it's more than just about our four walls. I love that you separated out humility and vulnerability because I think they're both really important. Um, You know, Dallas was famous for definitions. And he said, humility is just one word. It's just reality. If you can live in reality, you will be humble. But then going underneath that humility, how how do you find the courage to be vulnerable? Because I think this vulnerability is part of what allows for unity to happen. Yeah, for me, it's just a lifestyle choice. You know, that if I'm vulnerable with my wife, with my kids, 
with my friends, with my staff, then, then it's just, I mean, it's, I'm just, it's just who I am. And it just extends to the pastors. You're just, it's just who you are. It's what you do. You're, you're not trying to put on airs. You're just, you're not pretending anymore. You're being real. You're being vulnerable. So again, again, I think a lot of pastors probably struggle with this trait in their own personal lives. So don't pastors don't try to be vulnerable with other pastors. If you can't just be vulnerable with your wife or with your kids or whatever. Yeah. And, and with God. And with God. That's true. Yeah, that's true. I think we can even we can even put on airs with God. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I also like the way you um, just went back and forth in a very simple way between busyness and ego and they can feed each other. You know, you can be busy in order to feed your ego. Your ego can need you to stay busy. So somehow disrupting that cycle a bit um, with the busyness. There was a study done recently with Notre Dame University and Duke and Azusa Pacific, and they found that the number one factor that prevents burnout in senior pastors, it wasn't more spiritual disciplines. It wasn't going back to school. It was one thing. Do you have a hobby that you practice on a weekly basis? And when you practice it, you lose track of time. Mm. And that losing track of time to me, I find so theologically profound that you might be out hiking and the world is still spinning on its axis and you had utterly nothing to do with that. It just kind of centers you back into your right role in the world with God. And so we will often spend time both asking pastors, what is that hobby for you? And how do you elevate that up to the same level as I need to pray, I need to read scripture, I need to have a hobby. Um, yeah, it's funny. I'm pulling up the, my Kindle right now, Nancy, because it's. I think it's your husband who talks about this in his book, um, where he he talks about the unhurried life. We did a series earlier this year on spiritual disciplines. We called it Breakthrough. We just talked about getting breakthrough in your life. So many people need that right now with COVID and what's been going on. And so, you know, we we just said you need to the the secret to breakthrough is. The spiritual disciplines, you know, these were these were disciplines that Christians years ago practiced, and I think we've fallen out of the practice. And my favorite one for that whole series was was from uh, John's book where he talks about the practice of slowing. I'd never really thought about slowing as a spiritual discipline, yes. but man, did I ever need that one? And I still, I, that's still, I, I I take the long route home. Um, from work on purpose. And I, that's been, that is so against my nature. And probably for many of us pastors, it is, you're just go, go, go all the time. Absolutely. And I've just had to learn to, whoa, slow down and be more yeah. present Yes, with God. Yes. And then that just allows me to be more present than with, you know, with my spouse, with my kids, with my church yes. and with other pastors and leaders. Um, John and I will have this playful argument back and forth. I hate the word disciplines. I like rhythms and practices because I don't want to be a soldier for God. I want a <laughs> relationship with God. But having said that, I remember the practice of slowness. I was on my way to work one day and had to stop at a uh, crosswalk for an old lady. And I just found myself annoyed with her. And then I thought, what if that was your, your grandma? Like, what is wrong with you that so even leaving three or four minutes and it's early for an appointment now is part of my practice of getting there early, getting there first, having a chance to breathe before that person comes to meet me and not to get annoyed with little old ladies who are just trying to get across the street. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Just say, you know, when we start to boil discipleship down to even those moments, I think we start to get clarity on what it really is. Yeah. yeah for years, I wouldn't put a bumper sticker, a Christian bumper sticker on my car because I wasn't worthy of it. <laughs> I knew that well, there's all kinds of reasons to avoid that, but um, yeah. we won't get into that today. Yeah. Um, one last thought. And then uh, I just want to talk for a minute or two about the upcoming conference. What opportunities are you seeing for kingdom multiplication in your context right now? As you coming out of COVID, you've been in Utah for a number of years now. What are you seeing on the horizon? For uh, the I think one of the most exciting ones in our context in Utah is this mini series called The Chosen, which my wife and I have started watching and the, one of the main reasons we started watching it wasn't because all of our Christian friends told us to watch it, which they did, but it was because our Mormon friends, some of the Mormon, we're discipling a Mormon family right now, and they keep talking about it. And the reason they're talking about, which is interesting, is because, I don't know if you people out there knew this, but for the set, they're using uh, a Mormon set in Utah. So those first two seasons, I think they might be building their own set for season three, but 
for those first two seasons, you're looking at a, a, the, a set that's I'm pretty sure is owned by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church. So it's interesting, Mormons, at least some of the friends that I've talked to, they feel like that that was a collaboration. Isn't it cool that we're collaborating with yeah. with other Christian churches, that Mormons are, and Christians are collaborating together to tell the story of Jesus? Mm-hmm. Now, that's exciting to hear mm-hmm. on one hand, but it also kind of is a bit of a yellow flag to me on the other hand, because I want to make sure that they, that they realize that their Jesus is not our Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that that's an interesting trend that that I'm intending to capitalize on. We're, we're considering doing a series on The Chosen and marketing it in Utah because so many Mormons are watching it and loving it, which I think is great. That's fascinating. Well, thank you for that. So you're going to be one of the main speakers in the lineup for the Bay Area Regional Conference, which is coming up October 5th and 6th. And as I mentioned just having this conference in the Bay Area has been such an incredible gift in a post-Christian culture where church planting is slow at best. Mm. Um, when you think about the leaders that will be joining together, what's one thing that you hope that leaders will take away from this gathering? Well, as you can tell, if you've been paying attention to what I'm saying here, collaboration is not is not my heartbeat. I think it's a result of what my heart beats for. My heart beats for disciple making. And so I love that that the church around the country, I feel like just the Holy Spirit has been putting disciple making on so many leaders' hearts over the last 15 or 20 years. I, and I love that. I love that there's just a lot of talk around this. There's a lot of movement around this. Um, there's a lot of excitement around it. But my heart is to see people actually do it. And so to really come down to, hey, you know, and I would encourage pastors and leaders who are watching this, find find a system, it, pursue God or whatever else, doesn't matter, but find a system that resonates with you and then use it, implement it. And I think there's going to be a lot of collaboration around it. There'll be a lot of unity that grows up out of that. So I think in general, there's unity around this idea of disciple-making, but now more specifically, it's time to get after it and make sure that we're bringing it to our churches. Uh, and it, it ties back into what you said earlier of uh, this kind of discipleship is what then helps drive us towards the unity that Jesus hoped for us. It's like you're digging down deep underneath all this stuff to say it's really about the discipleship. And I find that encouraging. I would agree with you. I feel like there's been this um, trickling resurgence so I think I'm at, I'm going to check out your website today. I think um, John Tyson talks beautifully about discipleship. I think Peter Scazzaro and Rich the Lobos just wrote an incredible book on discipleship. How do we look at all the parts of our lives and come up with a, a system or a way forward where our growth in Christ will be noticeable by us and by others? Mm-hmm. So thank you for that so much. And thank you for your time, your insights. Uh, It's been a rich discussion, Brian. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you. I'll see you in October. All right. See you then.